do you want to try to land the plane without the engine? I said, sure. He pushed the throttle in. I flew it in there just like Sully Sullenberger. And right before we got to the ground, he pulled the throttle out and we did a round and came back. He said, you want to do it again? I said, no, I'll think about it and it'll be terrible. So next time I lead singing, keep this thought in mind. But <laughs> this morning I want to talk a little bit about the spiritual and the physical effects of singing and music. It's a topical study, and topical studies are difficult because we have to consider all that the scripture has to say on the topic. And then, different from word studies, which just require an understanding, a topical study requires an application, which makes it more difficult than the word studies. So we, as I was looking through this this week, I said to some of my wiser friends, there is no scriptural example of congregational singing. And the response I got was mostly, why would you say that? But one man told me, he said, well, semantically you are correct, but in concept you're wrong. And this is exactly true. But why would I say this? I say this right now to point out the traditions of the churches of Christ over the last hundred years. If you're familiar with these traditions, you may have heard the term command, example, and necessary inference, which I may refer to as CINI, which would be the, um, the acronym for it, but command, example, and necessary inference. It's one of those catchphrases like we speak where the Bible speaks and we're silent where the Bible is silent. The difference is CINI is a complication of things where don't speak where the Bible is silent is a simplification of a seminary term which would be the regulative principle. And that simply says that when the Bible is silent, we either have permission to do whatever we want or we'd have permission to do nothing at all or don't have any permission to do anything, I should say. And that's a, actually a simplification of the idea. And with passages like it is... Um, your word is a lamp unto my feet, and a man is not in a man's way to guide his own steps. And I've given you all things pertaining to life and godliness. It would suggest that only God has permission to, to, to guide our steps. And therefore, we do not have permission to make things up when the Bible is silent. But the fact is, you may have heard the statement, command, example, and necessary inference is a failed hermeneutic. And not to get into a bunch of seminary terms, but hermeneutics is simply the study of literature. Is it fact? Is it fiction? Is it prose? Is it poetry? Is it figurative? Is it literal? And this simply helps us to understand the study of literature is simply to understand what the words say. So, Command, example, and necessary inference is a complication of understanding. And it really is only one side of communication. Communication has two sides. You deliver it, you receive it. Those who receive interpret. Those who deliver are the ones who show, tell, or imply which is a simple way of saying command, example, necessary inference. Show, tell, imply. You tell, you command. You show, you example. You imply, you infer. So it simplifies that. 
And it shows us that it is nothing but communication. If you want to communicate something to me and you have a different way, by all means, let me know that different way of communication, but don't show me it, don't tell me it, and don't even imply anything about it. And the fact is, there's no other way to communicate except for these three ways. So we have taken a simple idea and complicated it. And I say all that just to make the point that there is no example of congregational singing. There's no Acts 27 that says on Sunday they meant to sing together. But if you go to uh, 1 Corinthians 14, and in chapter, or chapter 14 and verse 15, Paul's talking about the assembly of the saints and what they're doing in the assembly. And Paul says, For what is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray also with the mind. I will sing with the Spirit, I will sing also with the mind. And the idea behind all this is that we have to have an understanding. To be spiritual means that we have an understanding of spiritual things. Without understanding, we worship nothing. We worship an ephemeral vapor. With understanding, we worship an active and a living God, a personal God who cares about us. And one thing that we do understand and have for a long time is that music is powerful. Both Plato and Fletcher are attributed to the quote, you let me write the songs of the nation and I do not care who writes the law. That is the power of music and nation building. It's unifying. We have national anthems. We have songs of tribes and clans. Do you think the vocal parts of the war dance did not mean something? We have songs of our family. Oh, we listen to that album every Christmas. And even here, our church family, when we send somebody off, do we not send them off with blessed be the tide that binds? I believe that's the song we sing, isn't it? And when they hear that in their new home, do you think that doesn't jerk at their heartstrings? We don't lead it here any time other than that because we don't want that emotion that comes with it. So it is a great, a great tool for emotions. And Clint Black, popular artist, says in his song, isn't it funny how a melody can bring back a memory and take you to another place and time and completely change your state of mind? I remember as a child, Panama City, the crystal waters of the Gulf Coast, the white sands, AM radio was all we had, and the song from the fifth dimension, up, up and away in my beautiful balloon. The first time I ever recall feeling euphoria. I never thought of, oh, wow, this is so cool, the water, the song, so neat. It affects our emotional and our subconscious. The Bible speaks of this in 1 Samuel 16 when David played the harp. Saul was given an evil spirit when the spirit of the Lord was removed from him. When David played the harp, the evil spirit was removed from Saul. It bypasses our mind, and it goes straight to our emotion. Now, I've never hooked anybody up to an EEG, an EEG nor a PET, 
if you're into that technology, knew what that's about. But those who do have. And they took a pianist and hooked him up and discovered that while he's playing, all reason and decision-making parts of the brain are deactivated. Only the emotional and the reward centers are left active. Have you ever messed up the, the lyrics to a song as you try to work on the melody? I think this is what may be happening there. I'm not sure, but I've noticed I do that frequently. But the enhanced centers, the enhanced reward centers, are what caused me a little bit of a question here, because we think about the song, Sing to Me of Heaven. Great reward. But is it the catchy tune that's causing those reward centers to be triggered? Music is a unique power that demands an immediate emotional reaction. We're either soothed or calmed, stimulated or exhilarated. But music, musical notes, cannot convey a specific meaning. 1 Corinthians 14.7 speaks to this. Yet even lifeless things, either the flute or the harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinct tone, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? Unless we're told there's no meaning to the reason or the decision that should be made when we hear music. And that brings me to the purpose of modern music. And what would be the purpose of modern music? Perhaps only to make money? And what is money? The root of all sorts of evil? No, I'm not saying that all modern music is evil. I'm just saying that its source is money, and money has the potential for evil. It's not good. This was true also in Paul's time. Aristophanes, the Greek playwright, wrote of the cults of Dios, Dio, sorry, Dion, Dionysus. Dionysus, thank you, Dionysus, yes, wrote of the cults of the Dionysus that they are twisters of songs. And that's used in the same context of those who would twist scripture to their own destruction. They thought it was, at, thought that the cults were destroying music. They were making it debased and ruining it, ruining it completely. This was popular in Ephesus, where Saul wrote. Off to the east where Pergamum was, was the grapevine growing region. And that's where the Bacchus cults were really, really popular, but they came on into Ephesus and they had their parades in Ephesus and they, they worshiped in Ephesus. And their parades and their worship were not for the orgies and the drunkenness. That was part of it, but that wasn't what it was about. It was about the essence of licentiousness. It was about bringing to life the wickedness, as Paul would describe it, the debauchery, see Bacchus in that, Dionysus' partner in, in Greek, the debauchery was brought to life as we would say that Christ is alive. That's what they were trying to do with their festivals. They called on a spirit, the spirit of Dionysus. They worshiped a deity. 
the parades at night, in the darkness of night. They were women-only events. The sound of the whistling of the pipes and the flutes, the cymbals, the beat of the kettle drums, the swaying participants, the torch-lit procession through the night, the frame drums growing louder and deeper. And as they grow louder and deeper, the deity comes closer and closer to making his appearance. And is this not what Paul writes about in Ephesians 5? You were formerly of darkness, but now you are light. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful to even speak of the things which are done of them in, by them in secret. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, but understand, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks to the Father for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and even to the Father. The dissipation is the debauchery of the Ephesians. The darkness is both the sin and the night that they were marching in. And there are other things in secret that Paul alludes to that are in this book that are, he cleans it up nicely, I'll say. But some of these Ephesian Christians had left friends and families who were still participating in this thing. They were people who needed to be sung to. Clement of Alexandria in the second century says, leave the pipe to the shepherds and leave the flute to the men who fear the gods or are an intent on idol worshiping. Such musical instruments must be excluded from our wineless feasts. So what kind of worship does God want from us? I'll start by concluding with Ephesians 5.21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Who will sing with us? Who will sing for us? Who will sing to encourage us? That is Jesus himself. The hour is coming, and now is, when the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John 4, 24. Your word is truth, he says in John 17, 17. And the truth is, we will find how to worship him in his word. We haven't touched on much scripture in this lesson. We have looked at how God communicates to us through scripture. And there is no example of congregational singing. But it is undeniably implied. And it is certainly commanded in Colossians 3.16. You, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, 
with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Twice this week, Matthew eleven twenty eight has come up. Completely different subject. But both times it was in the context of people saying, I'm just not feeling it. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, says, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And my friends and associates were saying, I don't feel the ease. I don't feel the light burden. And the response was, all of life is a trial. And whether you're with Christ or without Christ, you have a trial. And the fact of the matter is, we have hope. And that is the hope of our souls that makes our burden light. The Ephesians didn't have hope that Paul wrote about. They didn't know they needed hope or they didn't want hope. But they didn't have it. If you need to come out of the darkness or you need help walking in the light, let's have that discussion. Let's stand and sing.